I mean, they are bringing a clown car of conspiracy theorists. When I look at the folks who are running for secretary in some of these states, Arizona is a perfect example. You've got a guy by the name of Mark Fincham. He was at the Capitol on January 6th, and he is running for secretary of state. There's emails from him already saying that if he would have been secretary of state, Trump would have won Arizona. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Kim Rogers, who's the executive director of the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State, a political action committee dedicated to electing and protecting Democratic Secretaries of State, a crucial office responsible for administering elections and important right now to protecting our democracy. Kim has worked in Democratic politics for her whole career and has learned a lot along the way. She's taken on the leadership of DAS, working to take it up a couple notches so that it can be a more effective part of the progressive ecosystem. Kim talked about her path to the role and what she's learned along the way. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Kim Rogers of the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Kim, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Hi, uh, I'm Kim Rogers. I'm currently the executive director of the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State, but a longtime campaigner, fighter for democracy, and have worked for candidates in the party as well as for economic justice with UFCW and NEA and other democracy orgs like Rock the Vote, and even got into the healthcare fight back in uh, 2009 after Obama won with. Change that works and SEIU. See, this is how when your resume gets so long, it's really hard to remember everything. <laughs> it is. I had to look on LinkedIn and see many pages for you. It's such an entirely different career than mine, which has like one job or two. I find it very interesting to talk to people who have different paths. Kim, where did you grow up? What kind of family? How did you get yourself into politics? So I grew up in Iowa. When you think about democratic politics, you automatically go to the caucus. My family was not particularly involved, but I was nerdy enough to get involved at a very young age. But that could have been because I liked the fanfare of parades and the idea of throwing candy. So I remember being like five years old and walking in the parade with my small town mayor, Roberta Boche. So very early on supported women in politics in a town of 200 people where I lived on a farm. So my dad was a farmer and factory worker and a retired marine drill instructor. 
And my mom was a stay-at-home mom until we were in middle school, junior high. And, you know, we grew up in a really rural part of Iowa. So she worked at a Walmart when we went to school and then went on to work at food service in Iowa State. My brothers and I were first-generation college grads. Where was college for you? I had a very on-again, off-again relationship with, with college because of my addiction to campaigns. So I went to Iowa State when I was in high school because I went to a very small high school and they didn't offer a lot of advanced classes. So Iowa has a cool program, the Post-Secondary Enrollment Option Act. So my high school actually paid for me to take college classes if they didn't offer them. So started out at Iowa State and then dropped out to work at Tom Vilsack's first race for governor and then took time off to do the caucuses in 2000 for Bill Bradley. And when he dropped out of the race, I got into the fall part of 2000 and finally ended up in Chicago where I went back to school at DePaul only because the candidate I was working for in 2001 and 2002 said, someday you're going to need this piece of paper. So you should really finish school even while you work for me. So you can work for me and go to school and make sure that you have that diploma for when you need it later on in life. Those are pretty good candidates to have chosen Vilsack and Bradley and some of those folks that you're working for back then. I admire them. And I wonder what it was about politics that was pulling you in, you know, to take you away from school like a lot of your peers were doing and to be so compelling for you? My family always jokes that I am an organizer by birth. I have three brothers and they are all these big, hearty Midwestern guys. So in order to eat what I wanted or get any food at all around the table or watch what I wanted on TV, I had to convince them that it was their idea Part of that is probably the competitive side of me. <laughs> I liked politics so much. But also, I think just growing up in, in poverty and kind of seeing some of the unfairness on how folks were treated just really struck a chord with me. I let a walkout from my high school because they didn't have vegetarian options. Not because I wasn't a vegetarian, but because my best friend in high school was a vegetarian and her only option would be, you know, iceberg lettuce from a salad bar. And that was pretty gross. And so we, we put together a walkout and the entire school joined in to get us healthier lunch options. So it sounds like the first few jobs are sort of like most people, pretty low level field organizing What's the first job where you had other people reporting to you? Well, strangely enough, somehow on the Bradley campaign, because I'd already done a cycle in Iowa, I was ahead of a few folks. And despite being, you know, a 19, 20 year old kid, I had a handful of folks who were county organizers who reported to me. So I ended up being a regional there. And, and then it kind of bounced around a little bit more. Definitely by the time 2008 rolled around and I was at Rock the Vote and running a nationwide bus tour with a full slew of production assistants and interns and field organizers to do registration, I was like, how did this happen? I was a kid in a cornfield and now I'm doing a concert with the Beastie Boys every night. <laughs> what was interim between 
Vilsack and Bradley and, and Rock the Boat? Oh, oh my gosh. I mean, so much. In 02, I was in Illinois, and that's when I got to finish up school, but also worked on a statewide controller's office. Prior to that, when Bradley dropped out, I worked for Dorothy Brown for the clerk of circuit court in Cook County, Illinois. In 04, I worked for America Coming Together, but also did a stint back in Iowa because my dad had a heart attack and in order to go home. And this kind of, you know, you mentioned that you had a deep respect for Tom Vilsack and, you know, I'd walk off the side of the earth for him if I could, because when my dad was sick, uh, they gave me a job back in Iowa so I could be near family. So I did some of his political scheduling and fundraising for the party during the caucuses in 03. Once the caucuses were over, I started with America coming together and got to have this bizarre life where I got to travel and do events all over the country to, to raise money. And again, kind of, I alluded to 08, I did the concerts, the Vote for Change tour in 2004 and got to do a show with Bruce Springsteen and R.E.M. and got to do a show with Dave Matthews at Ames, Iowa. And the, I really think the first time my mom ever thought I had a real job was in 2004 when she got to go to a Dixie Chicks and James Taylor concert in Iowa City that I was working on <laughs> for GOTV. Yeah, when you say you got to do a concert, or you know, what what do you mean? You were organizing political people to go to that. You were helping schedule progressive rock performers. What what did that mean exactly? So, fortunately, there was a team of production folks that got the artists together. And my role on the ground was, you know, it was a way to thank some of our volunteers, but they were really big GOT TV events. So we use them as mobilizing. So we were getting folks to go. We were getting people to sign up for volunteer shifts. We were making sure, you know, for the first half that people were registered. But then, you know, if early vote was available, like it was in Iowa, which were some of the concerts that we did, we were making sure that people had all the information to, to vote early and turn out. So for me, it was a bit of a combo. And then we did some clutches for some fundraisers that I helped out, but it was much more of like an, a mobilization event for my end. So you're getting kind of a broader view of politics over this time, right? You're, you're seeing campaign from different angles. What do you think you were learning about how the system works that you could tell other people or about how a career works? as you're building one in the space? If anyone ever figures out how a career works in this space, um, <laughs> please let me know. But, you know, I think a lot of folks, even, even my family, kind of when I first wanted to work in politics, were like, why would you want to do that? Like politicians are, are corrupt or politicians you can't trust. They're only in it for themselves. But I think that every time I met folks who worked on campaigns, I met people who cared deeply about the issues. I think one of the things I learned was a, was a much deeper inter understanding of some of the policy and what you could actually accomplish for people when working in these positions. I, again, grew up on, the, on a farm and until the first Gulf War when my dad kind of transferred over to working for the state, we didn't have health insurance. And when I finally got sick enough and went to the hospital, I had to have a kidney removed. And part of that is probably because I didn't um, know that there was a problem until I was 
15 years old. And so during this time, I think I learned to advocate for myself, but also to advocate for others. And that if you were willing to talk to other people, most people were willing to listen. And I think that right now we want to do all of this super efficient targeting and kind of get past the one-on-one conversations that work so well. And I think that was one of the things that during this time in my life, I was probably doing the best job that I've ever done because as organizers, you could actually foster the time to have those conversations and to get to know people. And, you know, we always say we like to meet voters where they are, but really it's that community organizing and relational organizing that allows you to get to know the community and to have those conversations and to learn how best to help people. I noticed that somewhere around here, you worked for the Democratic Lieutenant Governors Association. And that seems like kind of a similar type of place to the Secretary of State's Association. Anything there that you did relevant to what you do now? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> much like kind of my current role, it was a, is a bit nascent when I joined. Um, it had been kind of dormant, but they had a new chair coming in. And so it was a chance to, to build it up. You know, it had raised, I think, $50,000 the year before I had started. And so we very quickly, you know, exponentially grew that budget. But a lot of it is just about, you know, getting bank accounts set up and building the right lists and uh, making so many phone calls to, to, to dial for dollars because a lot of the work you can't do until you have some of the resources. So you're always having kind of this chicken and egg conversation of, well, I want to make contributions to these candidates, but I can't do that until I have money in the bank. So I've got to make the calls to get the money in the bank. And that is kind of similar to, to where I'm starting, though, on a, I think, much sturdier level now than back then. And the other good thing about right now is I have a candidate that is running for secretary of state as chair rather than a candidate who decided to run for Senate as chair. And so it was a lot harder to kind of focus on the lieutenant governor when that was really kind of the direction that 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 chair was going. We have all these separate groups, the Democratic Attorney General's Association, the governors, the lieutenant governors, all focused on different statewide offices. Does it make sense the way it's organized? It's kind of endless how many specific small entities there are with different focuses. I think that's an interesting question. I think there are probably people on both sides of the issue. I think that what governors do is very different than what AGs do, which is different than what secretaries do. I mean, across our 50 or I guess 47 states where there are secretaries of state, they don't even have the same job necessarily. But I do think one of the things that could happen is us working better together. And I do think that's happening right now. I think we know we're regularly talking to each other, but setting up a system to maximize resources. Like there's no reason that we couldn't combine HR and benefits and some compliance and some legal and some operations. So I do think that we are trying to figure out areas where we can make that work while still maintaining some of the 
you know, individuality around the offices because of the unique roles that different people play. Do you feel competitive to the other groups like that for dollars? Is it the case that someone might either give to you or to the attorney general or can it be cooperative? I think it's much more cooperative, at least um, in my experience. You know, I'm a relatively new ED. I just started this spring. I also have a longtime friendship with a lot of these folks. And they've, you know, offered to be helpful in terms of, you know, training up compliance staff or operations staff or, you know, even giving us office space. So I think it's much more cooperative right now. We've talked about list swaps and we're actually doing a joint event with some donors with this kind of the sister organization. So we're talking about how we all work together around voting rights, for example. So you spent quite a number of years, I think, uh, at the UFCW. You mentioned it briefly before. As a political director, deputy political director, and full political director, what's different about being out in the labor part of the progressive ecosystem than some of these more straight campaign places? One of the biggest differences is members, right? You actually have people. And, I, you know, I went back and I was talking about the stories and how important the stories were during organizing. You have people who have been laid off. You have people who aren't getting the hours that they need to support their family. And every political dollar that you spend is voluntary from those members, And every dollar of your salary is coming from dues that those folks pay. So there is a level of accountability. And if you're out there organizing and and doing your politics, you're actually seeing your members face to face. So it's not just accountability, it's, it's personal. And you're not, well, I would argue that unions are, are progressive. They are not necessarily big D Democrat extensively and it's certainly not their membership and so you have to remember that it's not about the party it's about the issues and it's about you know standing up for your members and economic justice is obviously something that's really close and near and dear to my heart so but i also believe that you know without free and fair elections it's really hard to get economic justice and frankly the two are tied together because the same people who are being you know, denied voting rights and their votes are being suppressed are the same people who are getting screwed over by their bosses and by corporations who don't want to pay them, who are doing doing things like wage stuff. And like, there's a reason that there's such overlap and there's a reason that they don't want folks to vote. What does a political director do for a union and what makes a good one? I think to be good, you have to realize that every dollar you spend is coming from working people. And to remind folks that you don't work for a party, you work for your membership. But in terms of what you do, it's everything from raising money for the PAC to registering voters, to educating your members, to working through the endorsement process, putting together questionnaires, getting input from your members. It is one of the the most rewarding jobs and one of the most challenging jobs that you can have. You went on to do political directorship also at NextGen Climate, now renamed, I guess, NextGen America. What was that like? It's really great to have resources, right? (laughs) To have a billionaire funding it? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it also allows so much innovation, 
I love my labor family, but also I was still sending blast faxes. And I went from <laughs> sending blast faxes to being able to work with a team that was doing distributed organizing and working with young people. And while you know UFCW is probably one of the younger unions out there, there's still a lot of our volunteers that are a lot older than the average member. So it, it was a, a really interesting juxtaposition about kind of how young and the ability to have those resources to be able to innovate and try new things. I think that was one of the best parts of it is just being able to try new things and see what works and then kind of lead the space to say, hey, we were able to try this because we had resources. So here's a learning that you can share across the movement. What were some things you tried? And I guess this isn't particularly innovative, but one of the things we were able to do because of resources is because NextGen came to the table with resources, they were able to um, get folks to get involved in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court race. And I feel like that's something that, you know, progressives haven't done as well at historically, but since I think in 2015 have been paying more and more attention to some of those Supreme Court races at the state level and understanding what it means, not just for the climate movement, but also for workers, also for education, and frankly, like also for voting rights. You landed at NEA, another union, um, different kind of union. Tell me about that role there. It was similar to the role that I was in at UFCW. It was in the campaign and elections department. I started out as one of their field team members, which kind of meant you had a few states, but you're really the point person to work with the affiliate in that state. It was a fantastic experience. You, you know, I had four states. I got to know the people in those states really well. I just moved back to Michigan right now, but at 18, I got to come in and I got to work with the Whitmer team and with the Michigan Education Association on all of the statewide and legislative races here. NEA really kind of gives you that opportunity to go into a state and kind of really, really dig in and invest because of the level of staff they have, the number of members that they have, and frankly, like their willingness to invest. What led you to the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State? I think that because of everything that happened in 2020 around the elections and the ability of some of these election administrators and secretaries to kind of flip on a dime during a pandemic to make sure that people could still vote. And then just the buildup of the lies around stealing the election and election fraud, it really kind of created these attacks on democracy. And, you know, this spring when we saw over 400 bills introduced to suppress the vote. And when I saw this opportunity came up, I just, I thought it was an opportunity to build something, but to build something that creates a foundation for every issue you care about. If you care about equality, if you care about fairness, like we can't have a democracy unless everybody gets to participate. And so I guess I just believe that no matter where you live and where you're from, you should have, like, it shouldn't be easier to vote in Colorado than it is in Georgia. Whether you live in Maine or whether you live in Alabama, like, you should still be able to, like, pick your elected officials. So I think if you care about education or healthcare or abortion, you have to care about democracy. So I thought this was kind of 
my chance to, to build something and to work with, frankly, some really amazing kind of future leaders of the party and to push back on the attacks that Trump and his folks have been laying for a few years at this point. How big is the organization now? Very small. This is actually the first time they've ever had uh, full-time staff. So I'm the first full-time executive director. It is currently me and one intern, though we have raised some money and I get to start hiring very soon. What's your hope that, that you'll be able to staff up to? So for context, they did about $2 million in 2020 and had a part-time staff and some consultants. I hope to get to a baseline of probably, I would say, between 10 to 15. And I think that means probably a staff of around 10 folks, give or take. Um, so we can then really invest in supporting these candidates for secretary. A lot of them have very, very small staffs of their own. They have, until recently, really kind of been under the radar and more apolitical. But because of the attacks, it's become more and more partisan. You know, we've had secretaries with protective detail because of the death threats, but, you know, they have small statewide limits in some places and, you know, you'll get a handful of staff on their campaign. So they need a lot, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to be supportive. Isn't there an outside group or two that focuses on secretaries of state? Um, there are some folks that do some IE work or have in the past, but this will, because of the way that we're set up as a 527, it's kind of a unique situation because we can work hand in hand with the secretaries, you know, in most states, we can give direct support to the secretaries and to some of the state parties to get candidate rates where it matters. But then we also have the ability to do an IE. So it's kind of more of a one-stop shop. But, you know, we, we plan on coordinating where we can with any partner. I mean, I think the more people talking about these races, the better. What's going to change to take it from a 2 million to a 10 million or more organization? What efforts, what technologies, what relationships, what do you have to do? I mean, part, part of it is just having full-time staff, right? Having somebody who is waking up every morning and thinking about it all day. I think that helps a ton because then you also have time to do the things like call time. <laughs> um, not that I love it, but I, I know that it's necessary. Part of it is just time and time put into it. But I also think that secretaries of state have never been more high profile historically. So I also think the energy around it. And frankly, given the current state of affairs in D.C. and how voting rights kind of stalled out, it really does come down to the states. And, you know, in 2020, a lot of secretaries were able to expand voting without needing legislative agendas because, you know, Jocelyn Benson in Michigan was able to mail an absentee ballot request to every single registered voter in Michigan. That was just something she could do. Uh, Secretary Griswold um, in Colorado did a ton, like added a bunch of drop boxes, including on tribal lands and on colleges and worked with the legislature to pass AVR. I mean, over 250,000 people were registered just through automatic voter registration in Colorado. You know, Secretary Hobbs also worked on some back-end uh, AVR. So, and th these are the folks who continued to, you know, 
make sure that people were signing up for Pebble and or like in Arizona to, to make sure that people were getting their ballots and frankly have stood incredibly strong in the face of all of the attacks. And if you look at Arizona, Michigan, Colorado, Pennsylvania, like those states could have been very different with different secretaries if we would have had different secretaries in 2020. And there's a very concentrated effort right now to remove powers from Democratic secretaries like in Arizona to get rid of Republicans who stood up for the law like in Georgia. I don't know if there's much more frightening going on, actually. It's well known to people in, you know, in politics, but it's not very well known to the populace. There's concerted efforts people should know to slant the way the system works to favor the Republicans. And it puts you kind of in the middle of something, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to, to do this job. And I think that, you know, one of the things that DAS is doing that we haven't been able to, or haven't done as much historically, because again, time and resources is we are pitching these stories out there. Like you will see Secretary Hobbs tell her story on, you know, broadcast news. We've been able to raise the profile of what the Secretary of State office is, as well as individual secretaries. But you're 100% right that this is a concerted effort. And it everything from the bills that are happening in, in the states across the country, in Arizona, as you mentioned, the interesting thing about the piece of legislation there is it only strips the current Secretary of State from her powers, or only last until her term is over. So it is partisan, it is personal, and they handed it over to an AG. And I think this is one of the thing, reasons we're working so closely with our friends at DAGO, with our friends at the DLCC, because if we had a Democratic AG in Arizona, I guarantee the legislature would not have handed over powers to the AG from the Secretary of State's office. And if we would have had a Democratic legislature, that bill would have never passed. So we all have to work together to, to actually save democracy. And I think that's another reason we're collaborating so closely right now. Do you think the alarm bells are ringing loudly enough? No. I mean, we're trying. Yeah. It is very hard for, I think federal offices are easy because senators kind of all do the same thing. They kind of all have the job, same job description and it's like one set of bills going through and there's still a lot that kind of go under the radar. But when you have 50 states and you have rules that are slightly different in each state, whether it's contribution limits or whether it's powers of AGs or secretaries or even legislative powers or ballot measures, and then you fold in the sheer number. I mean, there are over 400 bills just about restricting voting rights and another thousand bills plus to make access to voting better. So it, I think it's just hard for even someone who is incredibly in tune with it to, to pay attention and to know what's going on. But I do think that the media is starting to notice. I do think that the renewed energy around voting rights that we're seeing from the administration shows that they're paying attention as well. And frankly, I think 
even the Texas House Democrats walking out and flying to D.C. to say, hey, D.C., you have to do something because they are throwing everything they can at us in the States. We'll continue to bring attention to it. How much can we affect the result of a Secretary of State campaign? It feels like that kind of sits pretty close to Democratic performance in a state. How much does the quality of the candidate and the campaign matter at a kind of couple slots down the ballot statewide race like that, that not everybody focuses on? Well, I actually think that's one of the reasons you can impact it more. These races are historically relatively low dollar. I mean, at 18, I think they basically ranged from about half a million dollars to like the highest was probably Ohio for $3 million. So a little bit of investment can go a long way just in increasing name ID. And, and frankly, we had some secretaries that did perform at about the level of the gubernatorial ticket or better. In Georgia, we went to a runoff in the Secretary of State's election at 18. Unfortunately, we're not successful, but you know, still very, very close race. In Arizona, we won the Secretary of State's office as Democrats, but not the governor's. So I do think there there is a little bit of room. I think we have incredibly dynamic candidates that do matter. And I think that they are working really hard. And I frankly think because some of the extremists in these legislatures have gone so far out there on voting rights and on everything from kind of the fake audits to saying that Biden isn't our actual president, that that's actually drawing a little bit more attention to the folks who run elections like the secretary of state. So I think just the salience is going to be there in a way that it hasn't previously. When you look at the, the battlefield, what is the other side bringing to it? Are they bringing more resources to secretary of state races? Is it similar do they have a stronger analogous group to yours? What, is, what does it look like? I mean, they are bringing a clown car of conspiracy theorists. When I look at the folks who are running for secretary in some of these states, Arizona is a perfect example. You've got a guy by the name of Mark Fincham. He was at the Capitol on January 6th, and he is running for secretary of state. There's emails from him already saying that if he would have been secretary of state, Trump would have won Arizona. His competition in the primary consists of a state rep that is uh, Michelle Eugenti Rita, who wrote the purge of early vote. Like she wants to kick people off. That's, you know, a minimum of 100,000 people in Arizona that wouldn't get a ballot. And the other person, the, the latest entry is a woman by the name of Shauna Bullock, who's also a state rep, who wrote legislation that uh, the legislature should be able to overturn the will of the electors until Inauguration Day. So you have three people who have basically said, your vote doesn't matter if I'm Secretary of State. I think we may well see legislatures overturning popular votes in the next presidential election. I, I do not think it's unlikely. And I really should have brought a drink to this. Um, <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> we want you completely sober doing an important interview like this. <laughs> what else should people know about what's going on in the world of secretaries of states, in the world of 
trying to win more and support the ones that are out there. Just quickly, I would say it's not just in Arizona where those folks are running. In Nevada, there's a guy by the name of Jim Marchant who lost his congressional race last year and sued to overturn a five-point loss. Like in Michigan, the woman running, Christina Caramo, she was a so-called whistleblower and truly believes that Trump won the state and has been a darling on Fox News. And in Georgia, I think probably most folks listening have heard of Jody Heiss since he is one of Trump's favorites and is primarying Brad Raffensperger, who, you know, did one thing right. (laughs) Right. So, but I mean, what you're saying though, like sometimes we look at it and we say, all right, a wingnut is going to get the nomination for the other side. That's good because we probably can beat them. But what may well happen in a midterm election is the wingnut wins. And then the wingnut has power to maybe throw things the wrong way by not doing the job that they're elected to do, but to, but to act as a, a partisan in that role. I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. I think that's why these races are more important than they have ever been. I think on the good news front, we have really strong candidates running who are willing to do the work that it takes. And I think because these are, you know, lower dollar races, it's not going to be a $50 million race like the governor's race in Michigan. But it's still going to take some money, but like your resources go a lot further when you're helping like a Jocelyn Benson hold on to the seat. But I also think just having folks out there talking about the importance of the race, talking about the extremists who are running on the other side, I think that so many people are focused on the Senate and on keeping the House, which we, we need to do, that they oftentimes don't get down this far on the ballot. And so like resources get stuck. So, you know, when I look at some of the numbers that some of the Senate races raised in 2020, when you're seeing like these eye-popping sums out of Kentucky and South Carolina, I was just like, just a fraction of that into one of these states. So the more we can motivate some of the small dollar donors to give contributions and to get involved, I think there's going to be a lot of energy. We're spending some money growing our list. We're doing some acquisition, but we're also getting really creative and working with partners. Like, where can we do list swaps? What kind of you know progressive organizations want to like test out some of our democracy language and the importance of Secretary of States to their list to see how they can raise? We're very grateful to groups that are talking about this all the time, like Fair Fight and ECU and the PCCC just helped uh, on an email. And, you know, I'm leveraging some of my relationships to ask friends if like their principals will send out emails under their name. So we're able to get some bigger names talking about democracy and frankly, getting the idea of secretaries of state on lists that may not have talked about them before. Is there an organization that's doing a good job of helping small donors spend money strategically to use money on races like the ones that you're responsible for rather than send them to in a hopeless fight against Mitch McConnell or something in a state that he dominates? 
dear listener, please send them my way. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of folks that raise a lot of small dollars that go in a lot of different directions, but I don't know of any that are explicitly trying to, to send them our way. But I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like you might be the type of organization that could get hot the way Fair Fight has, that could like really make the case that this is a central fight for the democracy, that this is, you know, one of the main places that it's going to be fought in 2022 and 2024. And we need to be way more focused on this area than we currently are, or even than your aspirations, which are you know, quite a number of multiples of last time are. Well, I will say those are my baseline goals. I've got some big dreams too. So let us manifest hot democracy summer and, and beyond. I think you're right. It's, and I think that when people get to know some of the candidates, I mean, I've now been doing politics long enough that I'm older than statewide elected officials despite being very, very young. <laughs> um, but I'm older than some of our secretaries. And I think that's great because we have a ton of women. When I look at the candidates for 2022, there are people of color. And when you think about who is being disenfranchised with these voter suppression bills, they are young people. They are people of color. And they are the disability community. And we have secretaries who look like those communities. We have candidates that look like those communities that are running. If if you were going to highlight a couple races that are likely to be close, where you think we have a candidate that can pull an upset or hold a state, what fits in that category? Yeah. Um, we have got to hold Michigan we have got to hold Arizona. That's going to be an open seat because Secretary Hobbs is running for governor. We have got to hold Colorado. Secretary Griswold was the first uh, Democratic elected to Secretary of State since Eisenhower was elected, which is kind of bizarre when you think about Colorado. And she's still the only statewide elected woman. But then when you think about pickups, we've got Nevada. We came within 6,000 votes last time, and now the Republicans termed out. Georgia, of course, is on my list. We went to a runoff last time. And when you think about you know, the top of the ticket there, I think you're going to see a lot of energy around Warnock, whether or not Stacey Abrams gets in the race, that's a ton of energy. And right now there you know, is a pretty strong candidate who's working her butt off. So, Who is that? Who are these various candidates in those states? Oh, yeah. So in Georgia right now, there's a woman named B. Wynn. She is a state rep. She was very vocal um, in the fight for voting rights. Just dynamic, very hard worker. Uh, in Nevada right now, there's an announced candidate. His name is Cisco Aguilar. Again, kind of a young guy, lawyer, but just a really interesting background. And again, willing to do the work that it takes to win. In Arizona right now, we've got a primary, but two just phenomenal candidates. Um, we've got Reggie Boulding, who is the minority leader and vociferous like voting rights activist. 
And then the former Maricopa County recorder, Adrian Fontes, and that is, you know, a huge portion of the electorate in Arizona. And in Arizona, the recorder is the equivalent of like the clerk. So he ran elections in Maricopa. How does it feel to you right now to be here? Do you feel like, oh my God, another cycle um, already drained? Or do you feel energized? <laughs> where, where are you? And is this a place you want to be? It is exactly where I want to be for the cycle, despite being tired, um, but also incredibly energized. The amount of potential in this org and in these candidates, it's its phenomenal. There's so much that can happen. And there are moments where I wake up and I was just like, oh, the fate of democracy. <laughs> but I also know that um, I'm not in it alone, but it is, it's definitely a climb. And I'm, I'm just really lucky to have a bunch of secretaries who are working really hard, who are willing to make calls and willing to do what it takes to raise the money, but also who aren't afraid of a big fight because they know um, how important what they do is. It's personal now. Like the threats that have happened to them and to election workers and to poll workers, it's really personal. You've been through a lot of midterm cycles now, and you know the pattern of the party in power tends to lose seats. There tends to be a, a good year for Republicans when Democrats hold the, the Congress and the presidency, for example. How does it feel to you, though, this particular time? It feels like every election is like a wave election now. Well, sometimes it's two waves clashing. Like <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I also think that Donald Trump has just flipped so much of what I thought I knew on my head. I mean, I think the resources are going to be there. I think one of the really interesting things and something that's very different than 2010 or 2014 is that the investment is going into the party rather than a parallel organizing structure. OFA was what it was, but like a lot of the volunteers, a lot of the energy, a lot of the money, a lot of the infrastructure went there. So we also saw a parallel structure to a lot of these state parties for almost a decade. So we really started rebuilding some of that, not until like 16. So we've had a few years to start rebuilding these parties the investment is definitely coming. Like you've heard Jamie Harrison talk about it. You just heard Kamala Harris talk about another $25 million for voting activism and registration. Like, I think that's important. From what I'm hearing, there's a lot of investment happening in infrastructure and in party building and making sure that the foundation for what we need to do in the States is there. And I think that is something that has been missing from some of the midterms where we got beat up the most. Well, I hope it's, it is there and I hope it's one of the things that makes a difference. Kim, it's really good to get a chance to catch up with you. Yeah, it was really nice. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you for this. It was great. That was Kim Rogers. Kim is at demsofstate.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com 
or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.